Morning, everybody. <coughs> Our New Testament reading um, this morning is, it was very short. It's just a little nugget from the centre of Paul's letter to the Galatians. But what I want to do is just set it in um, the whole of that letter and give a bit of context to it. Um, I, I understand from those in the know that this letter that was written to the Galatians, it may have been the first letter that Paul wrote to any of the churches. I like the way Paul writes. He always writes as if he's speaking, and of course he was. Um, He was dictating. So you can just imagine um, Paul striding up and down, dictating this letter, um, full of of pleas and passions and and, um, quite angry at times, getting his point across, and some poor scribe trying to get down everything that he was saying. It almost sounds as if Paul's quite frustrated with these Christians, because they keep wandering off from the path that Paul is trying to lead them along. And he's determined to bring them back to the right way. In fact, towards the end of this letter, he admits he's at his wit's end about them. And so that's the kind of feeling that's in Paul as he's writing this letter. He's really concerned that these Christians in Galatia are being led away from the truth. So it's perhaps important to understand what was happening to prompt Paul to write this letter in the first place. It seems he was under a bit of an attack from his enemies. Because Paul wasn't one of the original 12 disciples and he'd started his life as a persecutor, he was trying to obliterate Jesus and his church at that time in the early days. So Paul was often vulnerable to attack. Who is this that's come along to tell us how to be Christians? Why was he being accepted as an apostle when he'd not been a member of the followers of Jesus and he'd not been witness to the resurrection? And so in the first part of this letter, Paul is explaining his credentials, if you like, and he's saying that his apostleship is no less than a special appointment from Jesus Christ and from God the Father. So this gave Paul a gospel that was peculiar to him, not different from the church, but intended by God and accepted by the church at that time as being specifically for the Gentiles. And that was the gospel that was being attacked. It was under attack from a certain kind of Jewish Christian. These were the Jews, um, there were Jews who genuinely believed that since the Jews were the chosen people of, of God, And since Jesus was God's greatest gift to mankind, a man must become a Jew before he became a Christian. Therefore, he must become circumcised. He must obey the Jewish law with all its observances about food, about Sabbath observance, about separation from the Gentiles, etc. And so these Jewish Christians were trying to get the, the Gentiles who were new Christians to follow that route. For Paul, the trouble was that this route to becoming a Christian implied that a man could earn the favour of God by doing certain things to his body and by obeying certain rules and regulations. To Paul, the only way to get right with God was faith. Now, that meant throwing yourself on the mercy of God as Abraham had done many centuries before. So there was this clash between faith and works. 
And that's really what prompted Paul to write this letter. That's what this letter is about. Even those who were born Jews, he explains, are not justified by doing what the law demands, but only through faith in God. So why on earth would it make any sense of any kind for the Gentiles to have to be circumcised or keep the Jewish law? When even the Jews are not justified through keeping the law. That doesn't make sense. And he says if righteousness comes by law, then Jesus died for nothing. Paul gets really quite worked up about this. And I just want to read a little bit from um, chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles upon you by your observing the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's he's desperately trying to get them to think clearly, to use their common sense. If they think about it, they can work out what the truth must be. So now we come to that little nugget that I was talking about um, of our reading today. In the last verse of chapter 3, Paul describes Christian believers as being heirs of the promise. Because God's promise to Abraham was that his faith would make him father of all who believe. The promise to Abraham of a descendant through whom all nations on earth will be blessed is seen as having been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, Paul describes Christians as having the status of sons of God and therefore heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs to the promised blessings to Abraham's descendants, which we heard about in our Old Testament reading, which are for all who put their faith in Christ, heirs in God's kingdom. Paul goes on to use an illustration that would have been um, understood by his readers at the time. At the very beginning of chapter 4, The first few verses are about the Roman custom of a child that comes of age. And in Rome at that time, the age at which a child became an adult was fixed by the father. So even if a child had inherited the whole estate, he was still under guardians and trustees until that date. Many children are are these days still. In a way, as a child, no different from a slave. Under the law, we are children without adult privileges, and we are under restrictions. 
Many of you may have installed certain safety restrictions uh, to protect your children at home from electric sockets or from the stairs or something like that. Your child is a precious family member, but as a toddler is under certain restrictions. But the time comes when these restrictions are removed when the child grows up. Paul says that when Christ came, the slavery under the law and the restrictions were done away with. Christ purchased our freedom in order that we might attain the status of sons. It was time for liberty. An heir doesn't enjoy the benefits until he comes of age. In Christ, we have come of age. And because God sent his own son, born of woman, born under the law, to purchase our freedom, we have attained the status of sons. How can we be sure of that? That, says Paul, is proven by the fact that God sent his spirit into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for father, and it's a lovely, familiar term. It's the kind of term that we might say dad or daddy rather than father. We have that kind of relationship with the Heavenly Father. You relate intimately to the creator of the universe. The spirit of Christ is in your heart. And God has a very special place in his heart for you. That's astonishing. So I'm just going to take a moment here just to stop and consider that. You have an intimate relationship as father and son with the creator of the universe. The fact that you're a son means that you're also an heir. An heir is someone who has already inherited. I just discovered that. I've heard of an heir apparent, but it never really dawned on me that before someone has died, there is an heir apparent, somebody who's apparently going to um, inherit. It's only once the decedent has died that we become an heir. Now, I think that's important. It means we're not waiting to inherit the kingdom. We already have inherited the kingdom. It's done, and it's not our doing. You are an heir with Christ, and you inherit as Christ inherits. Now, also, if we're all sons... That breaks down all the barriers that exist between us. There's no difference between us. So there's no need for this separation from Jew and Gentile, as these Jewish Christians were insisting upon. We're all one in Christ. So the division between Jews and Greeks, slaves and free men, males and females, are all eliminated. As we all belong to Christ, we are the issue of Abraham, and so we are all heirs of the promise. But what about the law? We can't so readily just dismiss 
the law. Surely this is the law of God, given on Mount Sinai. Was it not holy? As Paul saw it, the law has its uses. We can't ignore it. The law defines sin and therefore makes a man aware of his sin, but it's no cure for sin. For that, we have to turn to God in faith. Accept the offer of God that Jesus brought to men. The Christian, therefore, has complete freedom from the law. Does that mean as Christians we can just go and do as we like? Absolutely not. As Paul puts it, the whole law can be summed up in one single commandment. Love your neighbour as yourself. So our freedom is conditioned by the Christian sense of responsibility and his love for Jesus. We are free, but we're never free to injure our brother or to grieve God. So what is this freedom that we're talking about, that we have as sons of God? We are free to live the life that the Spirit gives us and to be released from our own lower nature. Paul is anxious to get the message across that as Christians, we're free because Christ has set us free. Then the problem was that they were tied to so many burdensome rites and observances of the Jewish law by which they were taught and kept subject like a child under tutors and governors. Now, the problem is that there are so many people in the church that still think that being a Christian is a matter of being a good person and that God won't love us unless we um, keep to certain rules and regulations. Things like reading the Bible every day and saying our prayers every night and attending church every Sunday or of not swearing, not shouting at the children, not telling lies, not avoiding paying the taxman what we owe him. In other words, people think that they can earn their way to God, or that they have to earn their way to God, by avoiding being a sinner as they see it. Paul is screaming at us from this letter to the Galatians, no, that's not what it's all about. Christ has set you free. You don't have to be tied into rule-keeping. You are already free to live life in the spiritual realm, in the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus told his disciple, the kingdom of God is within you. The spirit lives and works in you. That's what keeps you from following the lower nature. No effort on your part. He's saying refuse to be tied into that slavery again. And trying to be good is being a slave to these rules and regulations. No, the only way to attain righteousness is the work of the Spirit through faith. Accept what God has done through Jesus. Paul gives us this wonderful news this morning. You are a child of God who has already inherited the kingdom. The Spirit lives and reigns in you. 
That's why we say our prayers. The desire to speak to the Father comes from the work of the Spirit within us. Not because it's a rule that we must follow to be a good Christian. If you inherited an estate here in England, you'd have to learn all about it, wouldn't you? In the same way, we need to learn about the kingdom we have inherited. The only way to do that is to read what Jesus taught us in the Bible. It's not a rule, it's a response from within. Because the gift of the Spirit is what we have from our Father. Living in the kingdom isn't about the effort we make, but by allowing the spirit that we've inherited to work in us and through us. Paul puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.